When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If I'm in finance, I say, well, I'm the CFO. I have a job to protect the financial health of the firm. So I need everyone else to get in line with my job. So a big part of being an effective CFO, an effective general counsel, is to position yourself as a true partner, just like any salesperson would do to a prospect or to an existing client to say, well, here's what you're trying to do. And here's how my function, my expertise can support you. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Hey, welcome, everyone. Today's topic is one that affects every single one of us. You're in a leadership role at all. You are also in sales. Whether you want to think that way or not, you are. And our guest today is an expert at sales and has written a tremendous book on the topic that I think you're going to find very accessible and very human-centered in his approach. So Robert Chen is a partner at ExecCom, a global business development and communications skills training company, and he helps Fortune 100 business leaders and their teams communicate, lead, and sell more effectively. So he's going to help us do the same thing. So in addition to all of his corporate client work, Robert also teaches advanced persuasion and storytelling, which sounds like an awesome class to me, at the Wharton School for their MBA and executive MBA programs. He's been recognized in, uh, as one of the top 50 outstanding Asian Americans in business award. Uh, and he's the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller that we're here to talk about today, Selling Your Expertise, The Mindset, Strategies, and Tactics of successful rainmakers. All right, Robert Chen, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. David, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this topic. It's uh, it's one of those that I had to be convinced early in life that I was in sales and I had a, a mentor of mine who was saying, hey, you're really good at that. I'm like, yeah, but I don't do sales. He said, hmm, maybe more than you think, but it was a very couched very differently. And I think there's some things we can draw out of that, but we'll, we'll get all there. Uh, before we dive well, into the book and sales and everything else, Robert, can you take us back to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? That's a, it's an interesting question, David. I was thinking as you're, you're sharing that, I've heard a few of your other podcasts. You know, growing up, I never really thought about stepping into a role of a leader, although I often fell into one and I try to reflect on the common theme and whether it's my church youth group, whether it's the club basketball team I was a part of, I think I fell into leadership often because uh, along with others, there was some change that we all wanted to make. And I, I think I was the uh, person that I think had the interest to put in some of the work to try to make that change happen. And then inadvertently falling into a leadership role. So I wish I, I was more purposeful about stepping into a, a leading role, but I, as I thought about in my youth, that's how I found myself in that role. Hey, I don't know. For me, that's about as pure of stepping into leadership as it comes. There's this change I want to see happen. I have energy and interest in making it happen. So let's do this. And, you know, isn't that right. at the core of leadership is that, hey, if we all work together, tomorrow can be better than it is today. And you were making that happen. Yeah, I, I think that that is uh, now that you've articulated so much better than than I did. I think that is the essence is to bring about some positive change. So, well, and that's a, I think such an important segue and why I say that anyone listening to the show, if you're interested in leadership, you're for you're interested in your own influence is why this topic is such a pertinent topic is because if we're going to bring people together and be influential in that way, we're selling at the very least, if we're not selling and, and bringing in customers to buy our product or service, we're certainly selling an idea to someone. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, David. And if I think about now that you brought up the language of change, I think often as a consultant, and this book is written very much towards the 
knowledge worker that's looking to affect some change. I think often we're brought in when the company wants to do some type of initiative and they're trying to escape, right? The inertia of status quo. So I think often as a salesperson, you're probably part of that change equation, which I, I think is often the responsibility of the leader is to lead that change. So without a doubt. All right. So we've got one of your earliest memories of yourself as a leader, having that energy and inspiration for change. You share in the book, and I just, I wanted to draw this out. We're talking about human-centered stuff, and, and you keep a pair of scissors on your desk as a reminder of something. And oh, there they are for our, if uh, I, I know you're only listening, but there they are. Nice. All right. So we've got a, this pair of scissors that you keep on your desk. Robert, can you Tell us, what are those scissors all about? You had some early experiences with sales and why you have those scissors in front of you every day. Yeah, sure. So these are Cutco scissors. And I don't know if the audience is familiar with Cutco. I think they, at, at the time I joined with them, they were called Vector Marketing. And basically my first foray into sales was at a job for Vector Marketing. And to be honest, when I first saw the letter, I thought it was a marketing job or marketing research. I wasn't sure what marketing was. I was a chemistry-focused uh, major, and I did lab work pretty much my entire working career. So when I learned that my job was to sell Cutco kitchen knives, I was a bit shocked, but the hourly rate, I believe it was around like above $15 an hour, maybe even close to like $17, $18 an hour. Uh, I said, why not? And I would tell you that I bombed <laughs> miserably. Uh, I, I, I made one sale to my uncle and he ended up returning the knives. So I, I made zero sales throughout my entire time there. And I think that really, in some ways, confirmed uh, for me that sales was likely not for me, not something I wanted to do. It was fell into my impression of sales. And I will say that you know now being in the role that I am at a, as a partner at a firm, uh, the impression I had of sales is certainly not really what sales is, but I think based on our work coaching a ton of folks, it's still pervasive that oh, a lot of people have this distaste for sales. Well, I'm, as soon as you, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, but as soon as you tell me that you were selling knives, I'm immediately picturing somebody saying, it slices, it dices, it also makes julienne fries, you know, like that kind of kind yeah. of a presentation and 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 you talk about like you did some of that with the scissors right like you were yes. making, you were like like making birds out of, out of what david not birds swans oh swans. beautiful swans out of pennies and that was the the closing flourish of the sales cycle to show the power of the knives although uh, of the scissors as part of the knife set although i don't know if anyone's ever using scissors to cut <laughs> pennies into swans but uh, but uh, yeah, I love it. To it so oh, sure. that's great. So your earliest memory of sales was defacing currency. That is fantastic. I just love that. So I'm not going to get into any legal trouble for that. I seriously doubt it. There's got to be a statute of limitations on that. All right. <laughs> that's great. So you keep those scissors in front of you. You had them at arm's reach when I mentioned them every day to remind you. Why do you keep those in front of you? Yeah. So it really reminds me that you can have something that's awesome. Right, because these scissors are truly awesome. I've had them for for two decades, more than two decades, and they're still cut. They still can go get through anything. Wow! But scissors, the product itself, doesn't sell itself, and that it's so important that you, know, you not only do you have the product, but you have the ability to get this product into other people's hands so that they can benefit uh, from the value it can bring. And I think that's often the case for knowledge work as well, that people work so hard and being so good at what they're an expert in, but no one ever gets to experience it or no one ever gets to uh, unlock that potential. And, and that was really one of the major drivers uh, for writing this book is I would see so many people who worked hard and they couldn't bridge the gap between what they're able to do on a technical uh, standpoint to getting other people to engage them in more meaningful ways uh, whether it's their idea or their service. Mm. You know, that really spoke to me when uh, early in the book, as you're getting into the, the introduction and, and helping people understand it, you say, you're talking to the reader, you say, you know what you're good at, you know you're good at what you do, and you take pride in your work, but 
you're realizing that your technical expertise alone won't help you get ahead and have the career success that maybe that you want. Uh, and so you give some examples here. If you're a lawyer, you're drafting documents, analyzing cases, and doing the billable work. As a portfolio manager, you're listening to earnings calls, reading quarterly fi filings, and as a management consultant, you're scrutinizing your clients' processes and presenting them with more profitable strategies. Whether they listen to you and follow through or not is another story. All the consultants are like, you got it, man. <laughs> so the takeaway here, like, you can be really good. Those scissors can be super good. They can be the best in class at what they do. But being good enough, being super good, being the best at what you do is not enough for a successful business, revenue stream, um, success of your department, if you're internal facing, what have you. That's right. That's right. I think it's just recognizing that you have to get this into someone else's hands or into a company and that it doesn't happen just because of the product itself and that you have to uh, sell it and and that's a critical component to unlocking the potential of anything right that you're looking to provide to someone else and i think often when people are waiting for the product to sell itself they're often just waiting unfortunately and then they have to opt to do something else because they can't have a living right just waiting. And I think that's all one of the reasons for making sure this book gets into as many hands as possible is so that you have really smart people doing great things. We want to make sure that other people are benefiting from those, those things that they're working on. All right. So Robert, I know that we have some sales leaders in the audience who are listening in going, Ooh, yeah, I'm going to pick up an extra tip strategy tag. Absolutely. That's going to be great. I know we've got some executive senior leaders who are thinking about overall and, and their customer acquisition and development and so forth, and they know what they're listening for. And we also have leaders who are leading teams that are very internal facing. So maybe they're a finance director yeah. or human resource, but they're internal facing and they're in support roles or IT uh, direct uh, leaders. And I believe that there is an aspect of their work at their most successful that is also sales-based. And I'm curious your perspective on this. Before all of you folks who are leading those internal support-facing teams turn off this episode or fast forward to the next one, let's pause here. Is there What is there in selling your expertise that we need to be aware of for leaders who are internal-facing? Yeah, I would say one thing is to recognize all of those corporate functions, whether it's HR, finance, IT, risk, compliance, they all have some expertise that they're bringing to help right the company run as effectively as possible and similarly right in many ways they are the advisors to the business unit to the sales team and often whether or not the business unit the sales team their senior leaders opt to go with their advice will be dependent on their ability to sell that advice so in many ways there's a direct tie to the same skills around salesmanship that should go into uh, the toolkit for any leader of any corporate function. Because I'll tell you the most common thing that happens, and I think this really aligns with your general approach around being both human-centered and practical, is that we always go from our perspective. Right? If I'm in finance, I say, well, I'm the CFO or I'm the deputy CFO and I have a job to protect the financial health of the firm. So I need everyone else to get in line with my job. The thing that we don't realize is no one else has that job. So they could care less all right, about your job and helping you do your job. So, Spoiler alert. Yeah, that's right. So a big part of being an effective CFO, an effective general counsel is to position yourself as a true partner, just like any salesperson would do to a prospect or to an existing client to say, well, here's what you're trying to do. And here's how my function, my expertise can support you. And then they'll be more open to it. So in many ways, there's a direct uh, correlation. And so if any of your listeners are feeling like they're not getting the response they want, or they're not getting the buy-in, there's definitely an opportunity to find alignment between what the group you're looking to influence uh, and what you're trying to make happen and making sure that you're taking that responsibility to build, build that bridge. 
Robert, as you're talking, I'm thinking about a coaching client that I had at one point, a very, very successful operations person who was very, very frustrated at the lack of perception or lack of buy-in or so forth for the problems that that he was solving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the conversation we were having, uh, one time he was saying, I just want the work to speak for itself. Yeah. And I said, oh, man, I, I know how you feel, but you you can't let the work try to stand on its own two feet. You have to stand up for the work. Yeah, that is so right. That is so right. And I will tell you, it's really getting other people to recognize the value that you so clearly see. Right? We're all selling whatever it is that we're selling because we know it's really valuable. And sometimes our closeness to that value in, it gives us the false impression that everyone else sees that value too. And so if they see that value, why aren't they doing it, right? They must be whatever it is, right? Idiotic, or they must be not focused on the right things. But I think when we begin to take responsibility for, how do we get them to see the value that we bring? And I'll tell you, David, in in addition to just getting normal things done, even in the context of a promotion, Right. Often we're coaching people, especially at very senior levels, like managing director and, and above, you have to show what you're doing and how it adds value to the broader organization. And often the inability to do that will prevent your promotion because at the higher levels, that's all you're doing is to really engage to get limited resources for your team. And if you don't get those resources, then you can't do a lot. So then your impact is minimized. And I think people don't really think about sometimes the impact of being unable to sell their ideas or unable to get the resources in terms of their ability to drive impact through the organization. Mm. Well, and you just use the word, what are we thinking about? And that really gets into, you you divide the book into three sections. And the first part is all about mindset and how you're perceiving yourself and others. And that's really what you've been talking about here is how we're perceiving the value that, hey, this, these scissors are amazing. My my general counsel is fantastic. You should be taking advantage of it or, or what have you. Yes. And others' perceptions, because they all have their job and the, the value that they're concerned about. So when we think about mindset and how we start overcoming that, and you use the words there for a moment, take responsibility, but what recommendations do you have for us to begin this process of selling our expertise by getting into an effective mindset? How does that, what does that look like? How do we do it? I would say fundamentally, there are probably two things you'll want to, to keep in mind. One is that it is your job to sell your expertise. So the, the willingness to sell I think is often one of the first gates that most people don't walk through is because they're not willing. So they don't put in the effort to try to learn. So then they're not good at it. And then they'll write it off as, you know what, I'm not meant for sales or sales is stupid or whatever it is that they say for not putting in the right effort. So first is taking that responsibility to say, you know what, I am a salesperson and I'm going to take that on. And then two, having the firm belief that you can learn it and get better at it and become really good at it. And that's also something that holds people back. So I would say that's the first starting point. And then underlying that, a, a, a mindset that I really like, and this came out of Carol Dweck's research on growth mindset versus fixed mindset, is adopting that growth mindset where everything is learnable if you put in the effort. And anytime you don't get the result that you want, part of what you'll want to do is to think about, well, what did I learn so I can better improve the next a shot that I take to get the result I want and continuing that path. Whereas I think most people opt out before even putting in the right amount of reps to see progress. Yeah, so that, that would be probably one of the first places to start. Without a doubt. As you are talking, you're calling to mind, uh, and throughout the book, uh, Robert has these practical tips, little call out boxes that are very helpful and uh, taking all of the concepts and then saying, okay, and here are a couple of practical ways to start implementing these. And when it comes to mindset, and you were just talking about this, one of them that you mentioned is um, this growth versus fixed mindset, but it's replacing I can't. Anytime we find ourselves saying, oh, I can't sell, I can't do that, I can't do that, with something else. So yeah. what do we replace I can't? Sure. I will say when it comes to mindset, it's one of these topics that's so squishy because all of us know we need to step into the right mindset 
but how do you practically do it, right? And a big part is first you have to spot, right? Your mindset. And usually you can spot your mindset through your language. So I can't is one of those language patterns that can begin to get you to consider, you know what? I might be stepping into a less productive mindset for myself. And so anytime you hear the words, I can't coming out of your mouth, I don't know if you want to correct someone else. It might be uh, uh, potentially rude, rude to do that, but at least for yourself, you can put, likely replace it with, I don't know how, I don't want to, or I don't believe I can. So when you do that, you, you no longer just stop because I can't, anytime you say I can't, all thinking stops, right? Zero progress. Nowhere uh, to go from there. Nowhere to go from there. But when you begin to switch it out, then you are just clarifying for yourself what you really mean when you say I can't. And sometimes it's, no, I can't get this done by the deadline. It's really, I don't know how to get this done by the deadline while completing six other priorities. And then now you can say, you know what? Maybe I need to shift priorities or I need more resources, right? You can say, I don't want to get this done by the deadline, which is a different choice altogether. And then the, I don't believe I can is probably one of the I'll put in air quotes, easier ones to change because it's just really believing that you you can, right? And just knowing that you're limiting yourself by your own belief. So often you can spot less productive mindsets through your language. And I can't is one of those easy ones that end up also being quite pervasive. And I use a lot of that in my coaching when any anytime I hear someone say, I can't, I'll pause them and I'll say, well, what do you really mean? Is it, I don't know how? Or is it, I don't want to. And in some cases, I can't is convenient, right? I can't come to your party. It's more convenient than I don't want to come to your party. <laughs> right. Go to your party. So, yeah, making the excuse. It's uh, when the excuse starts to thread its way into our, our mental pathways, isn't it? Uh, the, the word yet is another one that I like uh, after, you know, some of those statements of, you know, I don't know how to do this yet. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and it's beginning to see how language in some ways accesses and, our, and reveals our mind. And the more we pay attention, the more we'll begin to realize we may be just driving with the parking brake on more often uh, than not. And how do we put the parking brake down? And get out of our own way. Well, without a doubt, this uh, focusing on our own mindset and, and paying attention to the language we're using and how we're approaching and all that starts us off on the path. And then in terms of mindset, you talk about our focus on our prospects, our clients and getting out of our own head and, and focusing on them and having that kind of a mindset, which is so critical for successful influence sales and, and what have you. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that and then we'll drive it practical again. Yes. Well, I will say, and this, we started touching upon that when we we're talking about the internal function, trying to get buy-in because again, it's that idea of taking the focus off you and putting the sole focus on the person you're looking to serve. When I think of selling, I really think about it as how do I serve others with the expertise that I have that's relevant to them? And the practical shift is really beginning to, even the word seller, right? Because some people may have a connotation of I'm selling them, I'm persuading them, I'm forcing them to do something to really becoming an assistant buyer. So if you think about how do you become a really good assistant buyer? Well, you need to know what they're looking to buy. And if what they're looking to buy is exactly what you can offer, then you can talk more about that. But until you learn what they're looking for, there's no pitch there. So it's that idea of being able to step away from, I need to pitch convince to, I need to learn what this person's trying to do. And if there's a match, then I'm going to tell them about it and I'm gonna help them make the best choice. And part of that is also building the trust because as a salesperson, there's naturally a aversion or people wanting to keep you at an arm's length. So a big part, especially if you're in internal or external, any type of knowledge work sales, is you have to build a relationship. Right? Just like a, a leader and a, a, a follower. It's very similar, right? The leader sells a follower on a vision that is better for the follower. And if that vision is true, then the follower continues to follow. And if in some ways the follower feels like, you know what, you're selling me something that I'm not realizing or it doesn't seem to be true, 
then that leader begins to lose right, their followership. Absolutely. You offer a very practical way that we can do some evaluation around this. And it's something I, I have been doing. And I, I find this to be a really powerful technique. You said open an email that you've recently sent to a client yes. or an internal client, whoever it is that your person and count up the number of you and yours versus the I, me's and my. So talk, talk to us about that. What are we doing yeah. here? It's funny. This is actually something we emphasize in our writing class because it changes the way you're wording and framing your email when you begin to replace the I, me, because that's coming from, here's what I want from you. Here's what I'm doing to, okay, here's how you're going to benefit from it. Here's what you're seeing. So even the simple switch in trying to get as many you, your language into an email causes you to reframe it in a way that's going to be more relevant for the other person. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it is quite a useful uh, tip because when you find, I think most people will probably be surprised to find a lot of their emails are I, me focused. Right? I need this. I want this. Even when you're on the service side uh, to, to a client, oh, and yeah. just by switching it, you'll find it'll become more friendlier to the other person and more focused on the other person. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, once again, going to language, these are so practical, which is why I love these, these kinds of tips, but forcing myself to look at an email I'm writing to a client or a team member or what have you. And as I start doing exactly what you said, I describe what I'm doing and here's how I'm meeting your need or whatever I'm doing. And it's about me. When I start to consciously change that language, it really forces me to think about their perspective, their experience. It's not just a hack. It's not just a trick of, oh, I write this and I get some magical result. It actually changes the way I'm thinking yes. about things. Yes, you're so right, David. It is designed in order for your email to make sense, you have to step into the other person's perspective in order to make those you, your statements really come, come to life. So. I really oh, want to just appreciate you for the investment you've made to read the book and really uh, make this such a, a, a fantastic interview. So thank you for- I'm glad you're enjoying it. That's what it's all about. And, and thank I'm you for the value it. that you're bringing our listeners. That's, that's why we do what we do. All right. So uh, there is this one final element uh, in, in your section on mindset that I had to just give a shout out because uh, anybody who's been through any of our leadership development programs, the very first- principle we talk about on day one, session one, bullet point number one is showing up with confidence and humility. And you've got a, a principle in here about the mindset of confident humility. So can you walk us through what you mean by confident humility and, and why that's critical mindset for sales? Yeah, well, the, the important piece is recognizing you need both. Sometimes people say, well, you should be confident. And then all of a sudden, I, I think you have an episode on this. They move into arrogance, right? They, they almost take confidence too far and you need humility because you are there to serve others and you are not bigger than the person you're looking to serve. So you need to bring both of those pieces in because a big part of being able to sell anything, whether it's an internal promotion, whether it's an external service, is you have to instill confidence in the other person. So if you don't come in with, confidence, that's going to take you away from instilling confidence. But if you don't come in with humility, then you're not going to be doing the listening, right, that you need to do to really offer up the best uh, service. So a big part is very similar to, you know, what we talked about uh, with the I, me, and you, your, is to begin to realize that anytime you're meeting with success, ego is going to creep up on you. And to begin to be aware of when that happens so that you can self-correct and calibrate back to a place that led to your success in the first place. And at the same time, making sure that you're not over-indexing on humility in a way that really downplays the value you can bring. So it's this incredibly important balance of making sure you're both confident and humble, and that's how people experience you and that you're doing it in a way that is authentic as well. So important. We call it land in the and. It's the the confidence and humility. Yeah, All right, but, yeah, but that, yeah. that phrasing, that approach that you have of thinking of with regard to the other person, 
that you are confident in your solution, your ability to help, but you're humble and I'm not bigger or more important than they are and approaching that with that even keel. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things is to make a shift from seeing your prospects, other functions as the building block to your success and beginning to truly position yourself as the building block for their success. Oh, that is powerful. You can think about how do I do that? There's a set of behaviors that will naturally come out to be more effective. Robert, can you give us that one more time? Sure, sure. So I would say the one of the most important things you could do is to begin to see others not as a building block for your own success, but to position yourself as the building block for their success and what they're trying to accomplish. And when you look at doing that, there will be a natural set of behaviors that will lead to uh, more effectiveness uh, with the people you're interacting with. Mm, that is so powerful. And it's also intersecting really well with, uh, we just had a recent episode from uh, the authors of Hack Your Bureaucracy talking about, you know, big, huge bureaucracies and bureaucratic organizations of how you get yeah. things done and a similar kind of a mindset shift of, uh, of how you are a building block for other success and that what that does for your success as well. Yeah, that's right. And it feels counterintuitive because it almost feels like, well, if I'm so focused on other people's success, how am I going to succeed? But it's almost in order to succeed, you have to be focused on other people's success and making other people feel successful when they're with you and, and around you. That is about as literal an interpretation of human-centered as I think we've ever heard, and it makes all the sense in the world. All right, so we've been talking with Robert Chen. He's the author of Selling Your Expertise, The Mindset, Strategies, and Tactics of Successful Rainmakers. Uh, and so we've been talking a lot about mindset, Robert. Let's move into strategies where we're, we, we are focused on the mindset of our prospects and our clients and um, getting into some of the strategies now that we've got our mindset fixed, like how do we start prospecting, building the, the getting the leads, doing the, if it's in sales sales, and then doing some of that work that we need to be doing for the internal as well. Yeah. So I would say one of the things we try to do is make it user-friendly because sales just seems like this. there's a lot. And we all know, oh, there's some sales funnel and you put a lot of people on the top of the funnel and move them through to, to close. And we use three scenarios that are most common when it comes to sales. And this could apply both externally and internally is there's the first scenario, which is there's no need. No one's coming to you for anything, but you feel like they might benefit. And there's a strategy around that. I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that. The second scenario is when they do come to you for what they think is a need you could help with. So if you're internal, maybe you're the HR department and your business leader comes to you with an ask around learning and development for their team. So they're coming to you for your expertise around learning and your job is to convince them that, okay, you have the right solution. So that's the second scenario where there's a concrete need. They're coming to you for what they perceive to be your expertise. And then the third is you're already working with, and this could be internal, external, if external, you're already working with a client and you're looking to expand your business with that client, whether it's to work with different groups with the same service or to cross-sell other services. And so in each of these scenarios in the book, we have concrete strategies around each one. I'll pause here, David, just to get, uh, to be more focused on what you think, which scenario might be most interesting for uh, your listeners for me to dive into. And I'm happy to share one of the frameworks in, in the book around that. Uh, well, you know, I'm going to say I want them all and we just need <laughs> to spend another two hours to get it all, but we can't. So we're going to get one of them and then you're going to run out and get this book so you can find out the other two. All right, let's go with, let's go with the, the second one. Let's go with the, the person's interested in something. They have a solution or a need in mind and they're coming to us we have some relevant expertise. We might even know a lot more about what they absolutely need versus what they think they want. Yeah. So in that second scenario where there's a concrete need, they're coming to you for, and you've built up enough trust that they can share this uh, with you. And usually much easier internally, people will come to you with their problems because you're both internal, is to step into the persona of a medical doctor. And I find that to be an easy way to think about what you should do. And we have a three-step process, we call it assess, diagnose, prescribe. And just like a doctor's visit, 
right? If someone comes to you, the very first thing you want to do is not say, well, here's the solution. You want to say, well, tell me what's wrong, right? What is it that you're looking for, right? So you're assessing the situation similar also to the, and this is probably more for folks who are externally facing, you're not pitching your credential, right? You would probably be worried if you went to a doctor and they started talking about their education and, and what they went through. Of course, some of that will come into play, right? So that they know you're credible, but that's not the first thing you do. The first thing you do is just really listen to figure out what's going on. And as a part of that, you might have an assessment that you do similar to blood work that we may do for a doctor to further diagnose what is the issue, right? And that moves us into the second step is you do the assessment. And then the second step, you're going to play back what you feel is the need or the problem or the challenge. And the reason you do that is in order for the person to have any confidence in your solution, a big part of it will be your understanding of the problem. Because anytime someone's engaging you, it's likely because it wasn't an easy or straightforward enough problem for them to solve themselves. And this could be internal function or it could be an external client. And so once you diagnose the problem, if you do it well, then they will confirm, yeah, you know what? That's exactly the problem we're facing. Then now they are primed for your solution. And whatever your solution or service is will address that problem. Whereas I think in often many situations or with newer salespeople where they will automatically go, the minute they hear a need, it's, well, I have the perfect thing to solve that problem. And they're not listening, right? They're not taking that step to assess. They're not taking that step to really diagnose the problem. So that is um, kind of a, a very concrete way to deal with needs that come in. And there's a very clear ask. And understanding and asking those questions, how do you get beneath the felt need, the thing that caused the person to come and talk to you? And then, and that may be the actual deal, but sometimes it's a symptom of something deeper that you also have the expertise to help with. And I know that's a frustration a lot of times in, in sales, both externally and internally is like, ah, oh, gosh, here's what I could actually help with. It's a more meaningful sell. The person's going to be happier with the solution if we can get there, but helping them to perceive that need themselves. Yeah. So I would say, again, very similar, right, to the doctor analogy. Sometimes you go in because you think it's like a small issue and through your assessment, the diagnosis may be more serious. And part of it is how do you build trust in a way that they get to see that what they've come up to you with is a symptom and not a root cause of the issue? And how do you have that dialogue? Sometimes it's hard because they may have felt like they've diagnosed the root cause and they are looking to you only specifically for addressing a symptom. So you have to recognize that, but often it may be feedback for us that we need to be in the earlier parts of the process. Because if they're stuck on just a solution, they may have already made up their mind on what the root cause is and what role you play. So part of it is seeing, well, can I get in earlier? Or really inquiring, how did they come to recognize that this is the area of focus? And have they experienced other things like X, Y, Z that wasn't mentioned that may create an opening for you to potentially talk about a more serious root cause that should be addressed first. And so without knowing the context specifically, uh, those would be some ways to, to think about it, but also recognizing they may feel like they know what the root cause is and they may just want you for addressing an acute symptom, kind of like a painkiller. They want you to just numb <laughs> the pain for now uh, because they have other fish to fry, but they know this needs to be taken care of at the moment. And sometimes demonstrating you have that ability to be responsive there can give you the credibility to, to help with the, the future one. That's exactly right. And you might learn more as you work with the client to be able to highlight right, things you observe that can get them to recognize. But the biggest part of any change is getting them to recognize it themselves. Because I think there's just an inherent conflict of interest, right? Let's say internal example, if I was IT, I definitely want digitization of everything that's going on, right? Like I, I'm looking at everything needs to be automated, digitized, moved to the cloud. 
but it may or may not be feasible, right? It may be very disruptive to the business. It may not actually provide the financial returns, right? For all the trouble, it might be hard to find the resources to maintain and support that. So when we don't think about it as fully, then our recommendation may not feel like it's the right one. Uh, and But as you continue on and you can really show that, you know what, it's going to be cheaper, it's going to be better, it's going to address some of the key things we're hearing from client complaints, then you may find yourself with more openness um, uh, around those ideas. All right. Talking with Robert Chen, author of Selling Your Expertise, The Mindset, Strategies, and Tactics of Successful Rainmakers. So we've been talking about mindset and uh, we've just been exploring some strategies uh, in terms of how you're approaching people or, or when they're approaching you, mm -hmm. some of the conversations that you're having and so on. I wanna move a little bit farther down the road. You offer so many different strategies in the book, Robert, but when we're talking about um, successful engagements with customers, one of the most important things we can be doing is asking for referrals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you've got some particular approach to that that I think would be helpful for everyone when it comes to how do we ask, A, why ask for a referral? Shouldn't it just happen if we were that awesome? Yeah. And B, if we are going to ask, how do we do it? Well, I'll say there's always a number of, a subset of people who are very good at being natural referrers. They just like to help others. They know maybe they themselves were in business development. But for others, Often when you're done, they just move on to the next thing. And one of the low-hanging fruit for anyone who's looking to drive, drum up business or, again, push whatever they're looking to push internally is to make it a habit to ask for the referral, right? Sometimes it's just as simple as asking because they're not thinking about it, right? They're not thinking about how you're helpful to others. They're just thinking about the stuff they need to get done. But what's really powerful about a referral is you don't have to do all of the convincing that you are a credible uh, service provider, that you know what you're doing because it already comes with a, a recommendation. So I would say the tip is certainly to make it a habit anytime you have a successful engagement to ask for referrals. So I, I work with a lot of internal data analytics team. And often they're the group that needs to shop that expertise to like every other internal business unit. And often, you know, what they lose sight of is when they have a really successful pilot with one group, not only can they scale it there, they can ask that leader to share it with their other leaders or to take that example and shop that around to other leaders. And so I would say the the core tip beyond language in the book, I have some specific language for people to, to use uh, that you know, I, I don't want to regurgitate here, but I would say the more important thing is remembering to ask, especially right after a positive interaction where that person's most likely to take action on something that naturally they wouldn't be thinking about doing. Yeah, it just makes so much sense. And, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the internal example that you used, you know, so often people are struggling for headcount or resources. How much easier is it to do all of that when you have everyone perceives your value and is hearing it from their colleagues, even if they haven't used you directly? That's right. That's right. And that is, you know, I'm, it's very interesting you bring that up because when you are looking to scale, the team that was initially created to support pilots may not be big enough to support full rollouts. And so as part of your ability to scale is the success that you're showing. This comes back to that ability to gain resources, right, for your group. And the more resources you can gain, the more impact you have that allows you to get even more resources. So it's this kind of virtuous cycle, as long as you're someone that's showing that you can be very responsible with the resources given to you and that you know how to unlock that value. And that's a big part of what you're doing when you're selling your expertise is I'm the best person to make use of your resources, right? That's like the underlying pitch. And however you can convey that is going to get people to give you resources. And if they don't, then that's just feedback that maybe you have to convince them in a, in a more, more compelling way. 
Well, listener, I hope you're getting a sense of just how much practical value there is uh, in this book. And, and Robert, I so appreciate you taking the time to share so much of this with us. We're not done yet, but before we, I got one or two more thoughts or things I want to explore with you, but can you tell us where do we find you? Where do we connect with, with you and maybe find the book? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn. If you look up Robert Chen or Robert Chen Coach or Robert Chen Exactcom, you'll see me there. Certainly go to our firm website. That's www.exec-comm.com. And you'll see uh, a link for the book. We have certainly our, our workshops, our corporate work as well. Uh, so those are some really good places. And you could buy the book on Amazon and places where books are sold. Uh, I wish I remembered that tagline. I feel like I say so much and butcher it every time. Everywhere books are sold, right? Yeah, All right. The name of the book as you're getting out there and looking for it, Selling Your Expertise. All right. So we've been talking mindset. We've been talking strategy. And then you've got part three, you get into a lot of different kinds of tactics. And uh, some of the things you mentioned are networking and you get into negotiation tactics and, and mm -hmm. how you build a network that provides value and, and so on. So I thought maybe let's just get one from each of those. And I've got one in that negotiation section I, I really want to draw because I thought this was positive and it was massively human-centered. Okay. So let's start with networking. Yeah. It's one of these areas like, oh, gosh, what do I do? How do I do it? What do I That's not shoving. I hate that. Help us understand networking. And what's one practical way we can become a better networker? Yeah, so I think uh, one is to really understand what is networking. I think when you, if you think about networking just as schmoozing or attending some conference, then you're you're likely not going to experience a lot of success. So if you think about networking, the underlying principle is how do you get other people to want to learn about the value you bring? And that's going to come from one, being aware of you, two, connecting with you in some way so that they're interested in you. And then three, if they're interested, how do you then showcase your value in a way that they're open to? So when you begin to think about, well, if my goal in networking is really to get people open to my value, that will begin to guide how you might participate, right? One, it may be just helping others because when you help others, they're going to want to know, well, what can I do for you? It might be attending an event as a speaker, because when you speak, you're actually revealing what you know and what you're able to do. And if people resonate with that, then they may you know, engage you for that. And it's also recognizing the right forum based on your own strengths. So if you're a great speaker, then you should speak. If you are a great writer, then you should write. As opposed to networking being just about meeting people. Because the meeting of people and the first contacts, that in itself isn't very valuable. It's really where do you go from there and how do you create working relationships? How do you create helping relationships that now you're supporting each other uh, throughout your, your career and finding more and more people uh, like that. And another great way, and David, I'm sure you, you probably do this just in the nature of your job, connecting people who would benefit from each other. And that would be how I would think about networking as opposed to, I think often people think of networking as attending events and schmoozing, which I don't think yields much, um, many good outcomes. No, no, it doesn't. And it, and for the time it takes, it's not, it's just not worth it. But boy, what fun is it to add value to other people and to say, oh, those two folks need to know each other because they can do this. And, yeah. uh, and, yeah. and being sharing something where somebody's interested in supporting their cause, you know, there's just so much that we can do there. That's right. All right. And it requires you to figure out what people are trying to do. Whereas people, you know, and, and often we're engaged to even help with this. Is so they're focused on their own value proposition and articulating that. But that's probably one of the last things you should be thinking about, right? What you should be thinking about is what are they trying to do? Because again, I'm going to try to position myself as helping them achieve that as opposed to trying to get out my thing, right? Even though that is something eventually will come out just naturally out of the relationships that you build. Again, thank you for all of these practical tips and strategies. The last one I wanted to ask you about yes. that to make sure for our listeners here is when it comes to negotiations, and you've got, again, so much in the book, selling your expertise, but you talk about when someone disagrees with you, how we can respond. And your suggestion is acknowledge their point up front. Yeah. 
I, this, you know, I, this sounds okay. Maybe this is common sense, but there's no, I'm not overcoming the, I'm not, you know, all of the salesy nonsense that we have learned or heard or seen on television or something back in the day, it was very refreshing. The next time someone disagrees with you, acknowledge it. Yeah. Well, I will say, you know, the best way to disarm, and this is especially if they feel very heated, and this could be in a negotiation, it could just be in a, an interaction. We, we call it the art, right? Acknowledge, relate, transition. The People are entitled to how they feel. Maybe they are feeling that way off of misinformation or a misperception, but they still feel the way they do. And often our response, especially if we feel like they are discounting what we're offering, right? Our value or attacking us in some way is to respond with defensiveness. And instead of doing that, if you remember, how do I acknowledge what I perceive to be their feeling? What are they telling me? How do I listen as opposed to trying to defend? And it's usually through the act of listening that gets that person to kind of fall back one into a more, more rational mind, right? To have a conversation. And then two, you may learn something that actually impacts the way you respond. But often if we're not doing that listening, we're just going to respond with a assumption of what we think that person is trying to say. So instead of trying to assume, acknowledgement allows us to really listen first and then from there decide, okay, well, here's how I'm going to relate and then asking permission to transition into a response so that Whenever you're responding, the other person's actually listening to you. And that's quite important. So especially at the end stage around a negotiation, you're really trying to come to some agreement. And if there's no agreement, there's no deal. So how do you reach an agreement that no one's going to regret after? So, And that's true whether you're in a high-stakes sales negotiation for your business or having a, a personal relationship conversation with your partner uh, and everything in between. Well, I would say, David, it's critical. I think the human-centered part of it, if you're looking to do business long-term, right? If you're looking to make one sale, then you, you don't have to be human-centered because no one's coming back. But if you're looking to really have a meaningful, sustainable, long-term career, right? Relationships are the real currency and how you take care of people, they know it, right? You can't fake that, right? Uh, you could make promises and not keep them, but like word gets around pretty quickly, uh, no matter what business you're in. So I think it's just knowing that taking care of people is is good business and making sure that you are always focused on creating that positive experience all around. Hmm. Back to human centered. Robert, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Again, Robert Chen, selling your expertise, the mindset strategies and tactics of successful rainmakers. Thank you so much for uh, the time you've taken and all of the different bits of wisdom that you've shared with us. Really appreciate you being a guest today. Yeah, no, thank you so much, David. It was fun. And I was reading the story about how you and Karen met. That is such a great story. The, the meeting of passions. So for those who don't know the story, look it up on, on the website. Um, I think it's let, let's grow leaders.com. Let's grow leaders.com. Go to the about page and you'll find out the whole story there. Absolutely. Well, listen, we've got to wrap it up for today because we are out of time and I got to let Robert get to his next engagement. But listeners, uh, as you're thinking about selling, focus on how can you be the building block in someone else's success and be the leader you want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.